Now you take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Brooke Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. Now, here's your host, Radical Ross Belleville. Good day, tokers and tokets and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Wednesday, December 2nd, 2015, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we begin today on a sad note, uh, as we have to too often here in the United States of America. The breaking news this afternoon of a coordinated mass shooting in San Bernardino, California, uh, authorities looking for three men allegedly clad, uh, uh, clad in body armor, carrying long weapons, uh, some described as AK-47s, uh, at a center for the developmentally disabled. It's like uh, Newtown and the, and the kids getting shot up. Uh, he thought it couldn't get any worse. But no, this time at a center for the developmentally disabled, three men well-armed, body armor, uh, accounts so far 14 dead, another 14 injured, uh, active scene. They still got people on lockdown. And coming through my Twitter feed, I saw a tweet from Asha Bandela from the Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, no finer human being on the planet. She's a, a wonder. She's just a, a joy. And uh, her sister, apparently, was it? Um was uh, uh, on lockdown and she had worked, she works there and, and apparently is okay at the m- moment. But uh, I mean, this, this is hitting close to home. And I think we're at a point now in America where everybody knows somebody uh, who's involved in, uh, or, 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 you know, uh, has been touched by gun violence in America. And this isn't going to be a show where I go off on what we do about it. Other than, are we going to do anything about it? Because <laughs> we've tried nothing over the past couple, three years, and apparently that's not worked. So I'm open for all sorts of suggestions. I I just don't like the idea of, you know, random bullets in public places. That's what I want to stop. That's that's what I want to see stop. And if we've got some suggestions for that, hell, we could talk about it on uh, Toker Talk Radio. That's coming up in hour two, 4 p.m. Pacific time, top of the hour. Uh, live call-in number is 971 533 7111. And of course, where this happened in San Bernardino is just blocks away from the National Orange uh, Center, uh, where they have uh, the High Times Cannabis Cups and the Kush Cons and a bunch of other events that they have out there. So I'm kind of familiar with the area. And it's just terrifying. It's just awful. And um, of course, where uh, condolences go out to anyone who's been directly affected by this uh, latest mass shooting. And, and while I was looking that one up, there was a shooting at a uh, women's health clinic in Houston, Texas, and the uh, details are still developing on that. But for today's show, uh, we are going to get back to talking about marijuana. And we've got uh, in behind the headlines, we're going to talk about the stoners against legalization rearing their ugly head this time in the state of Arizona. Phoenix New Times has a big feature article on that. 
Then uh, we got a ladies of legalization segment where Maya Salovitz, uh, someone who I just admire the hell out of. I love her writing, uh, especially for Time and the Healthland column. Uh, she reports on the drug war, and she was a part of the Drug Policy Alliance Reform Conference on a panel on coerced treatment, you know, drug ports and all that. And then we'll finish out the show uh, with my radical rant uh, because Oregon is going to ban cannabis cafes starting on January 1st. I've got the latest details on that. But we start everything off with, with the cannabis radio news that's coming up right after this break. I'm Radical Russ. Stick around. You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. son of a Polish immigrant who grew up in a Brooklyn tenement. He went to public schools, then college, where the work of his life began, fighting injustice and inequality, speaking truth to power. He moved to Vermont, won election and praise as one of America's best mayors. In Congress, he stood up for working families and for principle, opposing the Iraq war, supporting veterans. Now he's taking on Wall Street and a corrupt political system, funded by over a million contributions, tackling climate change to create clean energy jobs, fighting for living wages, equal pay, and tuition-free public colleges. People are sick and tired of establishment politics, and they want real change. Bernie Sanders, husband, father, grandfather, an honest leader, building a movement with you to give us a future to believe in. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. It's time for the Cannabis Radio News, covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Cannabis Radio News is now available exclusively at CannabisRadio.com, featuring reporting from the Associated Press. Now, your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds in the Cannabis Radio News. This is your Cannabis Radio News for Wednesday, December 2nd, 2015. Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto came out strongly against legalizing marijuana on Wednesday, the same day his government announced a national public debate on the issue. He suggested the recent informal debate on the issue has already created confusion even among his own children. Mexico's Supreme Court ruled in November that growing, possessing, and smoking marijuana for recreation is legal under the right to freedom, but that ruling applied only to the four people involved in the case. Earlier, Interior Secretary Miguel Angel Osorio Chong announced that the government will open a national debate on the use of marijuana, with public sessions to be held in the second half of January. Mexico has decriminalized possession of very small amounts of marijuana, but activists want to go further, moving toward legalizing recreational and medical uses of pot. Polls show a majority of Mexicans oppose legalization. 
The U.S. Postal Service office in Portland delivered some potentially bad news last week to Northwest newspapers. If news outlets run ads for the region's booming marijuana industry, they might be violating federal law. The Friday memo pointed out it was illegal, quote, to place an ad in any publication with the purpose of seeking or offering illegally to receive, buy, or distribute a Schedule One controlled substance. If an advertisement advocates the purchase of clinical marijuana through a medical marijuana dispensary, it does not comply with the law, end quote. The memo quickly caused confusion and concern among publishers whose newspapers have published ads for dispensaries and manufacturers in the region's now two legal cannabis industries, medical and recreational marijuana. Staff members for Oregon Representative Earl Blumenauer and Senator Ron Wyden confirmed the offices talked by phone with the U.S. Postal Service to hear more about the issue. They say they have asked for clarification from the agency on, quote, what appears to be an outdated interpretation of the law, end quote. Minnesota Commissioner of Health Dr. Ed Ellinger announced Wednesday that intractable pain, as defined in Minnesota law, will be added to the list of qualifying conditions for which patients can legally access medical marijuana. The commissioner must notify the chairs and ranking minority members of the Legislative Health and Public Safety Policy Committees. Intractable pain will become a qualifying condition for medical marijuana effective August 1st, 2016, unless the legislature passes a law stating otherwise. The vast majority of the 23 states with workable medical marijuana programs allow the use of medical marijuana to treat intractable pain. Medical marijuana in Minnesota doesn't actually mean access to the cannabis plant. Rather, patients in Minnesota must use only non-smokable marijuana products obtained from one of two operational manufacturers. 49% of Arizona voters support and 51% oppose the idea of recreational marijuana legalization, says the poll released on Tuesday by the Morrison Institute at Arizona State University and the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. Not surprisingly, the poll showed that Democrats, independents, and people under 55 favor cannabis legalization far more than Republicans and senior citizens. David Daughtry, associate director at the Institute, says the results don't bode well for legalization because only 29% of Republicans said they favor the, me the measure. Quote, it is important to note, he said, Republicans and older adults vote in larger numbers than either Democrats or young adults, which would, at least at this point in time, uh, point toward likely defeat of the legalization of recreational marijuana, end quote. The 2010 Arizona Medical Marijuana Act passed by a mere 4,300 votes out of about 1.7 million ballots cast, or about a quarter of a percent margin. The Seattle City Council is moving closer to new rules that will make room for more marijuana stores in the city, but some in the business said the plan doesn't go far enough. At the same time, the plan faces a legal challenge for going too far. Under the proposal, marijuana shops and greenhouses would still have to stay 1,000 feet from schools, but the distance from libraries, parks, and child care facilities would drop to 500 feet. That would add nearly 40% to the land available for marijuana businesses. But the council was, as the council was considering the zoning rules, lawyer Douglas Hyatt was in King County Court to challenge the city's right to impose any marijuana rules at all. He said the city has no right to regulate a business that is still illegal under federal law. This has been your Cannabis Radio News for Wednesday, December 2nd, 2015. I'm Russ Belville. The Russ Belville Show, providing dictionaries to drug czars since 2009. Imagine life without taxes. Let New Era Certified Public Accountants, NewEraCPAs.com, handle your Cannabis 280E and tax strategy. Get your business prepared with New Era CPA's Cannabis Finance Boot Camp. 
NewEraCPAs.com. With years of experience in the industry, we are one of the nation's leading accounting firms for growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies from Washington to California. NewEraCPAs.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Today in Behind the Headlines, we take a look at the continuing saga of stoners against legalization. This time we focus on the state of Arizona where the Marijuana Policy Project has a version of what they call the Campaign to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol, or CRIMLA, uh, working to uh, legalize marijuana in Arizona. Recent headlines, they've turned in uh, 100,000 or so signatures. They're well on their way. Uh, Looks good for being able to collect enough signatures and make it to the ballot. And working against them, of course, are, you know, people like... Maricopa County attorney Bill Montgomery and all of the state apparatus and the cops and the prison guards and all the typical opponents of marijuana legalization, the big rehabs and so on. But also we've got a situation where marijuana activists are fighting against this. And the story is up at the uh, Phoenix New Times. You can find them at phoenixnewtimes.com. The story by Ray Stern is Hardcore pot activists want marijuana legalized in Arizona under their terms or not at all. A story from uh, September, and it's just uh, beginning to uh, uh, really generate a lot of heat down there. (laughs) Pardon the pun for our Arizona listeners. But uh, Jason Medar is at the center of this, and he's with this group called Arizonans for Mindful Regulation. And uh, he was also, it turns out in this article, a uh, dispensary owner in California who fought against Prop 19 back in 2010. So we've got a Stoners Against Legalization link going all the way back to the original Stoners Against Legalization in 2010. And uh, Medar, of course, is one of these legalizers who believes there should only be true legalization, that there's too many restrictions on what what's coming out of the Marijuana Policy Project. And vows to fight it. And this is where I've got the problem, right? Because you're not going to find me often on the side of defending marijuana policy project, but here you will. And it's because there's legitimate complaints with what they might propose in an initiative. Uh, As far as I think the Arizona one gives far too much control, local control to the banning of home grow. And MPP has been kind of, you know, there's the story that we we covered yesterday with Dan Riffle leaving MPP and citing the fact there's too much industry influence and MPP having to get buy-in from dispensary owners in Arizona and the 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 medical marijuana they've set up on the East Coast in Minnesota and these other states that are very very anti-home grow rights. And that's something that I think is very important about legalization is that we have the right to home grow. And 
this latest story here, you know, there's legitimate complaints I could have about this, this MPP Arizona initiative, but I wouldn't fight against it. It's not worse than the prohibition, especially the prohibition they have in the state of Arizona with the possession of this, the minor fleck, this, this fleck of marijuana can get me felony time, get you locked up with hardcore criminals. So to fight against something that would end that for the vast majority of marijuana consumers is just unconscionable. And sometimes the argument you get from, from the stoners against legalization is it doesn't legalize enough people who still grow eight plants would go to prison if there's a limit of six or people who grow 12 by 12 gardens would still go to prison if there's a 10 by 10 limit, whatever, right? They, they point to whatever the limit is. And well, people above that limit would still go to prison, so we have to oppose it. And the problem with that thinking is that's not entirely true. In the circumstance you live in now under prohibition, cops have probable cause upon finding the merest speck or seed or stem or trip to the garden store or fertilizer bags in your garbage and all sorts the electric bill usage, all sorts of ways they have to build a case to get the warrant to break into your house to find out that you've got the too many plants or too big a garden. When you legalize even a little bit, you set yourself up so that you've got a, uh, a shield against most of the probable cause that gets you to the point of getting busted. And I, this is not theoretical. In Washington state where they legalized just an ounce and no home grow and maintained a felony for 40 grams of marijuana. Charges for all marijuana crimes dropped by 63%. Not just the people who had less than an ounce, but people who were growing people that had a quarter pound, people that had extracts charges for everything dropped 63%. So legalize it and then work out the details later. I know nothing. Nothing. Hey, it's 20 after the hour here. Well, it's 20 after the hour everywhere except the time zones that are on the half hour where it's 50 after the hour. And the time zones that are on the 15 or the 45 after the hour, which I'm not going to do the base 60 map to figure out. (laughs) But happy 20 after wherever you're at. Happy 420 to the folks in the mountain time zone. When we come back, we got Maya Salovitz and coerced treatment. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. Or at least they pay me to say that. The Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. 
Dr. Dagger, hurry. Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct! Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's order. Less heat, more flavor. At Herbie's Cannabis Seeds, we pride ourselves on bringing you the best quality seeds from the world's most respected cannabis seed producers, all at the lowest online prices. You can find Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. All cannabis seeds are sold as souvenirs and as a means of preserving cannabis genetics. Herbie's Seeds in no way intends to condone, promote, or incite the use of illegal or controlled substances. We strongly urge all prospective customers to check their national laws prior to placing an order. Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. Proud sponsors of The Russ Belville Show and 420 Radio. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. In 1929, Pauline Sabin began the women's movement to end alcohol prohibition. Four years later, the 21st Amendment was passed. Women are crucial to ending adult marijuana prohibition, and we celebrate women's marijuana activism in a segment we call Ladies of Legalization. Welcome back, everybody. For this segment, we go back to the International Drug Policy Reform Conference uh, held in Arlington, Virginia, right near the Pentagon. And uh, I'm still unpacking a lot of the audio. There was just so much to record from those sessions. And one of the best sessions I attended had to do with drug courts and coerced drug treatments. And one of my favorite people was on the panel, Maya Salovitz, the writer for Time Healthland who focuses on addiction and drug war issues. We begin with her part at the conference with this little clip. Yeah, I, I just want to say that um, the whole idea of coercion in treatment is based on a fallacy, which is addiction is defined by compulsive behavior despite negative consequences. Negative consequences is another word for punishment. If negative consequences work to stop addiction, addiction would not exist. So the whole thing that this is based on is this idea that we need to hit bottom, we need to break you, we need to like, you know, make you do horrible labor and we need to tell you you're a piece of crap and all of this stuff is based on this idea that more that what people with addiction need to get better is more punishment. And what harm reduction shows us is actually what people need to get better is more compassion. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. And when 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 treatment is based on this, like we're going to grind you into the ground thing, and we know it has a ten percent success rate, why would anybody voluntarily show up for that? Why would they? No rational person would. Again, in contrast. 
People show up for needle exchange. People show up for Howard's program, which is wonderful and, and motivates people and, and meets people where they're at. When you stop thinking that people with addiction are out there having a ton of fun and we need to just interrupt them and like drag them in because they're just having too much fun and pleasure, um, you know, this is, you know, right. And, and so the whole course of model is just completely backwards. If, if it worked, we wouldn't be sitting here. So we're going to pass the microphone to Denisia, but on the way as it travels, I'm just going to say, going back to drug testing real quickly, there is also an overlay of drug testing that is quite uh, spooky and uh, uh, terrifying in the sense of our notion of our increasing society of surveillance and how much information the government has about us, quantifies about us, puts it in computers, and spreads out about us. And drug testing is exactly that type of information uh, that is put there and can be then spread uh, about us. Um, and so uh, there's this notion uh, of drug testing being a linchpin in loss of privacy on one hand, but also the notion uh, that when you enter a system of coerced treatment, your relationship as a patient, they'll call, they'll, they'll call you a client, a patient to a medical or treatment provider is fundamentally perverted because the confidentiality, the confidentiality that normally pertains between doctor and patient is no longer in the context of coerced treatment because there's a judge there's a probation officer or there's some other law enforcement official who has access to all that information that your treatment provider does uh, as well. And so what's viewed as a central part of therapy, confidentiality, is destroyed and blown out the window in the context of coerced treatment. So I wanted to add that overlay to, to the drug trusting quagmire. Denise, You know, I think what's increasingly clear to me as, you know, I... I'm not someone that's attended drug reform conferences before, but what's increasingly clear to me is that we live in different realities, right? So when we talk about um, surveillance, for example, as increasing surveillance, that's something that has never ended in communities of color, that often, or the, the basis of the wealth of this country <clears throat> is in colonization and the enslavement of people. Um, so that colonization has never ended for our communities. Um, but in specifically when we look at drug tests, often as we talk about mass incarceration, um, we talk about losing men of color and why black men, indigenous men, um, while they make up the biggest number, the fastest growing number are black and indigenous and other women of color. And so we have to look specifically at that content when we think about drug testing. In Tennessee, um, they have recently passed a bill that women are allowed to be charged with felony assault charges um, if, their, if their child tests positive for neonatal abstinence syndrome. <clears throat> so when we think about the context, you know, this isn't new for communities of color that you're criminalized when getting health care, but we need to think about how dangerous that is in particular for pregnant women. Um, and not just because they're carrying children, but for their own lives as well. Um, so in New Mexico, our particular context is, you know, some hospitals have tried to take a more progressive context and said, oh, we're only going to drug test people if we feel there's a real danger. Um, and some hospitals are just testing every single person um, that comes into the hospital and is pregnant. 
Um, but what it looks like is the exact same thing because the only people that get profiled for drug tests are people that are young parents, um, that have track marks on their arms, um, are people that have darker skin. And so we see the exact same policies. So sometimes when we see this progressive movement, we don't have the lived effects for people in our communities. Thank you, Daniel. I want to say something. I want you to take a look at this same issue from the experience of a drug addict, where you're doing something to yourself every day, many times a day, that you know is crazy. It's madness. And you cannot stop yourself. There is some part of you inside that is craving to be stopped. That yes, you want somebody to stop you from what you're doing to yourself. The stealing, the risks, the disease, the madness. And so, so the criminal justice system, on some level, steps in and stops you. I mean, on some level, that's what I wanted. On some level, because I was totally out of control. And that's what you're dealing with when you're dealing with addiction. It's not just these nice people who are, who are just, you know, dipping and dabbing and getting a little buzz on now and again. No, these people, we're, we're breaking into your fucking apartments. We're ripping you off in the street. We're doing stupid, crazy shit. So the criminal justice steps in. Is that so bad? Is it okay if I say something? Is that so bad? <laughs> I would, Real I, quick. Okay. Is that so bad? I'm going to tell the truth. If you are yeah, committing crimes bad. that are harming other people and that are predatory, absolutely yep. the criminal justice system should step in there. Mm -hmm. If you are doing nothing but harming yourself, I don't think so. Um, and I think that if the that you know, there's lots of people with addictions that do not do that stuff, um, and that obviously a lot of that has to do with privilege. Um, but it is a complicated, you know. If you've met one person with addiction, you've met one person with addiction. It is not, we are not all the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I will say that if we want a better drug court system, the way to go about it would be is, yes, if somebody's committing a real crime, that's harming the community and we got to do something about that. So what we should have, I would think, is that the judge should say, Right, you're committing these crimes, you obviously have a substance use disorder, here's a list of multiple, multiple treatment options, go for it. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold there, because we're actually going to turn to that next, and we're going to design a system very shortly, but I need to do a little data dump on you all, based on this last little interchange, which is, as, as Maya said, if you uh, have a drug problem and are harming others, you ought to have access to treatment perhaps through the criminal justice system because you're harming others and your underlying condition has a drug component to it. But here's the fact. Most drug courts in the United States, and by most I'm talking well over 95%, do not create eligibility for people in their drug courts who harm others. 
drug carts, for the vast majority, are only open to people who are caught with drugs or test positive for drugs or are using drugs, many of whom are themselves not drug dependent. And so these are people filling our drug courts who are not harming others, and many of whom might not be addicted or dependent. And so that's something we need to know when we're talking about how we're employing our drug treatment in our criminal justice system in days diversion alternatives. So that's one fact. Maya alluded to the statistic less than 10% of people who go into drug courts are successful in drug courts. And there's lots of data out there. And I asked our panelists not to be data heavy on this panel and cite lots of studies. I do want to tell you where those studies can be found. Many of them can be found in Maya's writings over the years. Others can be found in an excellent publication by the Open Society Foundation uh, that Daniel Wolf has contributed to about drug courts that analyzes all the data and all the studies uh, that have been done on drug courts in the United States uh, and elsewhere. And that publication is in the publications in the, uh, on the table, on the Open Society Foundation table, on the publications table. Uh, drug Policy Alliance is also collected the data, and you can find the data showing the lack of efficacy of drug treatment uh, through drug courts. But if that is the background, and some of this is new to some of you in this room, if that's the basic background, that drug courts don't really treat people who harm others, who would benefit most in society, who would benefit most from having treatment, and they're not providing good treatment, and it's failing most people who go through those court systems, why do they have such a great, solid reputation across the board in the United States. Why is there media? The media, when you read that open, when you open the paper or see an article about drug courts, it's always positive. And so I want to ask the two people who have some journalistic background on our panel, uh, Alice in a former life and, and Maya in a current life, why have drug courts gotten a pass in the public perception and none of these criticisms are being heard really outside this room? I'll start with that, and, and my background is I was a, a journalist uh, for 31 years before, uh, about seven years ago, I decided to take off the, the gloves and be a real advocate. And so um, uh, I think the reason is that the, the, you know, the criminal justice system and the you know, industrial uh, you know, capitalist system has basically bought into the drug court as an easy solution that, you know, according to the evidence that people have put out, and you know, but that has gotten the attention, saves money. You know, it's the kind of thing that people who are looking for simplistic solutions can latch on to. And um, while there are lots of smart and industrious and journalists who like to dig into things, um, there also are many people who are taking what's fed to them in the you know in the media. And the more we see the the media expanding into anybody being able to put out anything that they, you know, they choose that there are few, fewer filters, which is both good and bad in terms of the amount of information that's out. It's very hard to change a narrative that's out there. However, and I think, you know, it's up to us to help by providing journalists with this other view um, in ways that are very easy for journalists to take and run with. So that's stories of people who have been you know, totally harmed by, uh, um, you know, d- drug courts. That's stories that tell, that's what journalists are looking for and looking for, you know, a simple fact sheet that sums up the fact that the evidence is really lacking and that if you take this and really look at the evidence for drug courts, it's not there. And to, to have, that's, you need to, to con- contradict 
the mesh messages coming from politicians and the sort of the, the, just the pathway. And one other thing I want to say is that I think there's a counter uh, trend that's happening in the healthcare system that could be used as part of that argument um, and, 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 and you know pitch to make to journalists, which is the movement in healthcare right now is you know looking at the complex underlying issues in healthcare and looking stepping back and saying we can't just treat people with healthcare. We need to look at social and economic determinants. Um, there are multiple. Um, uh, innovative programs that are being funded by all different sources, philanthropy, the government, etc. Looking at how do we build a better mousetrap for you know for building together health and social services, essentially very similar to the harm reduction model, diversion model that people have been talking about. You need all those things, and at the heart of that is that the best you know people get better when they they have voluntary treatment and when they're engaged in their own health. And that issue about self-empowerment and uh, self-engagement is a whole other movement that's going on in healthcare. So I really think we can use those things um, to help turn, you know, the the dime on this. Thanks. Um, uh, so, with regard to the media and drug courts, the media has this sort of false objectivity thing going on, and they love solutions that appear to be in the middle between left and right. So that's one reason that um, that there has been a real love for drug courts. The other reason, um, I actually think the success rate is actually 50%, not 10%. The 10% I was citing was the um, rate for um, uh, drug treatment long term. Um, and it's actually 10 to 20%, to be fair. Um, but the, um, the 50% has to be understood in the context of that these people are selected to be the ones most likely to succeed before they get into the program in the first place. Um, so that cherry-picking of clients. Yeah, that should be taken with a grain of salt there. Um, I think, you know, the way the media also looks at this, um, you know, we, the media has been the biggest purveyor of this idea that you need to hit bottom before you can get better. And the drug courts, you know, Martin Sheen's out there saying we need the hammer to get people into drug courts. Yeah, that worked really well. Um, but, you know, again, um, until we get rid of this idea that what people with addiction need is more trauma and more punishment and more harm, um, you know, the media is going to keep up with this sort of 12-step narrative about sin and redemption. Um, so. Thanks. Absolutely. The other thing uh, with the media is that they're taking um, what they hear and they're not delving into it because they're comfortable with the attitude that, all right, these people aren't going to jail. Treatment is better than jail, so they need to be soft on that. So instead of asking a direct question, even when there's a 50% um, supposedly success rate through drug treatment courts, is out of that 50% that's left over, if they're not succeeding and sober through through the drug court, they're either incarcerated or they're dead. They don't count how many are dead. So you have had over 20 years of these drug courts with, say, 50% success rate. You said, how many people are going through a year, 125,000 people? If it's only 50%, then every year, the other 50%, which you, we don't know, how many are in jail and how many died? They do not count it anywhere. So when, you're, when they start to talk about if a journalist would, would delve into the numbers and ask the right questions or force the national 
Association of Drug Court Professionals to ask the right questions in their research, then maybe we would get somewhere, but they don't. And when the drug courts evaluate, the, um, or when they do the evaluations of the drug courts, that's all self-reported. And there's target goals that they're trying to meet, and it has nothing to do with the health of the people that are going through the courts at all. It was an illuminating panel, and I'll have the entire panel uploaded to my SoundCloud page. I can't tell you when, but just follow me on SoundCloud. You'll get the update when it uploads. And yeah, consider how many of those drug courts pad their stats by having a whole bunch of pot smokers who aren't really addicted to anything ending up in there and then successfully completing treatment on the threat of P-tests that can send you to jail. Of course they have great success rates. All right, stay tuned. We're going to talk about Oregon banning cannabis cafes at the start of the year and uh, why that's incredibly hypocritical. You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. Get the latest updates on the Russ Belleville Show by following Radical Russ on Twitter and liking the Russ Belleville Show on Facebook. This is Radical Russ encouraging you to take a look at the Weed Blog every day. Johnny Green and the staff at the Weed Blog are on top of all the latest developments in the fight to end marijuana prohibition nationwide. You can even get the Weed Blog on your smartphone by installing the Weed Blog app for iPhone and Android. If it's about weed, it's on the Weed Blog, including my original writing. So don't delay. Read the Weed Blog today. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at CarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one. I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. That marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug. Some think there won't be room for them in jail. We'll make room. I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it and didn't inhale. One major responsibility is to encourage people to use less drugs. Entirely legitimate topic uh, for debate. Radical rant. I received an email from Madeline Martinez, the proprietress of the world-famous Cannabis Cafe here in Portland, Oregon, and it stated that the Oregon Health Authority stopped by to inform us that effective January 2016, we will no longer be able, no longer be allowed to consume indoors. 
course, she means to consume marijuana indoors. And uh, the Cannabis Cafe is one of at least three such cannabis clubs that have opened up in Portland. There's one called The Other Spot and one that's opened recently on Powell called the Northwest Cannabis Club. And it's important to note, none of these clubs sell any marijuana. The The marijuana laws here don't allow for on-site consumption at dispensaries. And if you're going to sell marijuana, you have to be a dispensary. Um, in fact, no public consumption whatsoever. We can't smoke at bars or anything else. But these clubs have always been BYOB, you know, bring your own buds. And so they're run by volunteers and they've considered themselves private clubs and they require entry through the purchase of you can pay a daily door fee or a monthly membership or some combination thereof. They don't sell any alcohol or tobacco. Uh, and uh, sometimes they'll sell snacks, chips, sandwiches, whatever, sodas. But um, it looks like they may all be in danger of closing because according to the health authority, thanks to the passage of house bill 2546 that changes Oregon law. Uh, This bill was crafted to deal with the emerging technology of e-cigarettes and cannabis vaporizers. So it adds in this definition of an inhalant delivery system and it updates the law. So there's the prohibitions and penalties for the use of vaporizers for minors just like we forbid cigarettes for minors. So, yeah, law needed to be updated because, you know, these e-cigarettes were, you know, kind of skirting some of Oregon's laws about, uh, you know, cigarettes with minors and all that. But also included in this House Bill 2546 is a section updating the Oregon Clean Air Act, you know, the anti-indoor smoking laws, right? In Section 16 of the bill, it amends Oregon law to say a person may not smoke, aerosolize, or vaporize an inhalant or carry a lighted smoking instrument in a public place or place of employment. Uh, They do have the exception for medical facilities if you're on medical marijuana, but a person may not smoke, aerosolize, or vaporize an inhalant in a public place. Now you got your definitions, right? A public place means an enclosed area open to the public. So a building, even I suppose an outdoor, you know, fenced off area would be enclosed. And then an inhalant means nicotine, a cannabinoid, or any other substance that is inhaled for the purpose of delivering the nicotine, cannabinoid, or other substance into the person's respiratory system. Now, don't worry. They did carve out the exceptions for like asthma inhalers and (laughs) that kind of stuff. But what the penalty? Now, the penalty for allowing smoking or vaping to happen in your club will be up to a maximum of $500 per day. And so, you know, these cannabis clubs you know, getting by on volunteers and door fees can't add another $500 a day to their, you know, operating expenses. 
So why do we have to shut down private clubs that aren't selling weed, just allowing cannabis consumers to exercise their First Amendment right to free assembly? Why must we stop them from doing such a thing? Well, we'll tell you in House Bill 2546, it says... The people of Oregon find that because exposure to secondhand smoke, certain exhaled small particulate matter or other exhaled toxins is known to cause cancer and other chronic diseases such as heart disease, asthma and bronchitis. It is necessary to reduce exposure to such smoke, matter or toxins by prohibiting the smoking, aerosolizing or vaporizing of inhalants in all public places and places of employment. So this is what the, I mean, the Clean Air Act used to say, you know, because of exposure, secondhand smoke is known to cause cancer. We have to prohibit smoking in all public places and places of employment. And that, now I disagree. I think that we can have places where people could smoke and we could find ways around, you know, dealing with it. I mean, my God, we allow West Virginia people to be coal miners. And the lung damage from being a coal miner is far worse than being a waitress in a restaurant. But I digress. Even if you disagree with a law like I do, at least it had some sort of rational scientific backing. There is considerable scientific literature about the health danger of secondhand tobacco smoke. And that previous, the previous justification that the exposure to secondhand smoke is known to cause cancer and other chronic diseases such as heart disease, asthma, and bronchitis. We have to reduce exposure to smoke by prohibiting the smoking in all public places and places of employment. That works for me. That's a logical statement. But what they've amended in is they've shoehorned in this phrase, certain exhaled small particulate matter or other exhaled toxins. And then added, we have to reduce exposure to the to- the matter or toxins by prohibiting aerosolizing or vaporizing. Look, the science is not established on secondhand e-cigarette vapor, much less cannabis vapor. Now, I looked. I looked up in PubMed because you know me. I look shit up. Uh, there does seem to be some studies on the harm of secondhand e-cigarette vapor. And what I did find shows that it's far less harmful than secondhand tobacco smoke. Far less harmful. And the e-cigarettes themselves are a harm reduction alternative to conventional tobacco cigarettes. Why would we want to disincentivize people from using those? But when it comes to secondhand cannabis, and, and this is whether we're talking secondhand smoke or secondhand vapor, there's no scientific backing to the notion that it might cause cancer or other chronic diseases such as heart disease, asthma, and bronchitis. What little... Okay, there's some research on smoking cannabis chronically that leads to bronchitis. I'll give them that one. But what little research there is on secondhand cannabis smoke, right? Direct cannabis smoking, bronchitis, I'll give you that one. But not heart disease, not asthma, and certainly not cancer when we've seen cancer, less cancer incidence in regular cannabis smokers. But we're talking secondhand cannabis smoke, and what few studies there are focus on whether it causes bystanders to test positive on workplace drug screens, on the urine tests, right? Researchers found, quote, positive tests are likely to be rare, end quote, and that, in a second test, quote, Room ventilation has a pronounced effect on exposure to secondhand cannabis smoke, end quote. 
Now, these studies get done because workers try to sue to get out of getting fired from failing a pee test by saying, but I was just in a room with people that were smoking pot. It was secondhand. And they're like, no, secondhand cannabis smoke can't make you fail a test. So if secondhand cannabis smoke can't make you fail a pee test, how can it be having a deleterious effect on the people in a cannabis club? But despite the state deciding that it needs to protect us from secondhand cannabis smoke and vapor, the state does allow an exception for people who want to gather and smoke, not vaporize, smoke tobacco. Yes. The Oregon Health Authority will certify smoke shops. These are businesses that do at least 75% of their business in tobacco products and allow for the sampling of tobacco products. You'll be able to go to a place that sells smoke, sells tobacco, which we know the smoking of causes cancer, emphysema, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, heart disease, and we know the secondhand smoke of it causes all sorts of problems as well. That'll be okay. As long as it's a smoke shop. And Oregon Health Authority will also certify cigar bars. Cigar bars that have a capacity of 40 persons or fewer and allow only for the smoking of cigars. That'll be just fine. Even though that's tobacco and we have scientific evidence that the secondhand smoke from that is really bad, even though that's the whole damn reason we came up with these clean air acts in the first place was because the tobacco secondhand smoke was so awful. We'll allow smoke shops and we'll allow cigar bars that can have up to 40 people in them. That'll be okay. Oregon Health Authority will sign off on that. That's copacetic that's just fine and both these cigar bars and smoke shops have to abide by regulations for adequate ventilation okay good and both must absolutely forbid the smoking or vaporizing of cannabinoids on their premises no my god we don't want you inhaling something that might help reduce your risk of cancer we're the oregon health authority So when you boil this all down, all indoor consumption of cannabis must be banned, even if it's vaporized, which produces no known secondhand harm, even when adequate ventilation eliminates any chance of this unknown harm. No cannabis, can't have it, no indoor, no outdoor, no private clubs, It's all banned. Can't do it. The only place you can smoke pot is in your house. But, of course, if you're on Section 8 housing, you can't do that. And, of course, if your landlord uh, says no smoking, you can't do that. So a whole bunch of people out there have this right to smoke cannabis, but no place to exercise this right. No cannabis smoking at indoor clubs. No private clubs. No, by God, we can't have that. But... We can have exceptions for indoor consumption of tobacco, even when smoked, which we know produces toxic secondhand effects, just so long as there's adequate ventilation. (laughs) Wow. So here in the Pacific Northwest, following Washington's legislature, which felonized 
any club. I guess I guess uh, Oregon's got it good. Ours is just a five hundred dollar fine per day. Washington's legislature felonized any club that would dare to allow indoor cannabis consumption. And now Oregon will be fining cannabis clubs out of existence. Meanwhile, Coloradoans are continuing to lobby for indoor consumption rights. Alaska has gone ahead and allowed for indoor public cannabis consumption. And the leading 2016 legalization initiatives in Maine, Massachusetts, and California all allow for some sort of on-site public consumption. It's time for the leaders in the Pacific Northwest to recognize what a tragic mistake they are making in not licensing indoor cannabis consumption, some sort of cannabis clubs. The Pacific Northwest is such an amazing tourist destination that somebody who wants to enjoy cannabis where it is legal and has a set of states to choose from might now be choosing Maine or Massachusetts instead of visiting Oregon or Washington, might be choosing the rocky coast of Maine over the rocky coast of Washington, might be choosing California. They can sit on a warm beach and maybe go to some cannabis club and enjoy some cannabis while they're there legally. I can't emphasize this enough. Pacific Northwest, Washington, and Oregon... You must come up with a legal place for people to consume cannabis. It makes no sense for people to have a right and have no place to exercise that right. Some people live in places where they cannot consume cannabis. They should have some bar to be able to go to. And if we've learned to accept bars on every street corner in some of our cities that cause so much more harm than a cannabis club ever possibly could... It's time to end the madness and get them licensed. That's all the time I got for Hour 1. Stay tuned. Your call's next in Hour 2, Toker Talk Radio. And until next time, take care of each other, Tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down to It's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? On dope? Or you can tow. I inhale. Uh, or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. Or you can talk and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about toke on Toker Talk Radio. So by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Portland, Oregon at Rolla Day Studios. Plus your calls live at 971 
533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the enema man and Snoopy Snoopy Poop Dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gateway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? Don't tease me. We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of Gonta graphics, the sultan of sativa statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reefer mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical Russ Belleville. Welcome, everyone. Hour 2, Toker Talk Radio. Phone lines are open at 971-533-7111. Any topic you want to talk about, we're all good with that. And um, coming up in the second half hour, we're going to hear from Ethan Nadelman, a portion of his speech at the opening plenary of the International Drug Policy Reform Conference. Uh, Ethan's an amazing public speaker. If if he's ever anywhere near you and you get a chance to go hear him speak, you should take it. Uh, he's just dynamic as hell. And uh, follow up on the uh, San Bernardino shootings uh, that have uh, recently transpired just this afternoon. Uh, reports are that there was a uh, they, they, they found the SUV, they got the three guys, had the shootout with them, and they're all dead. I think that's the latest thing that I've heard. One interesting uh, thing happening is that um, San Bernardino is uh, trending on Twitter, and that's not how it's spelled. It's San Bernardino, right? So leave, people are leaving out the second R in San Bernardino when they're tweeting this. So uh, it's just a shame, man. It's just a shame. We're we're so tired of, of seeing these uh, mass shootings happening in America. And uh, interesting tweet came across. Uh, we're not sure if this is a terrorist incident. It means we do not know the race and religion of the shooters at this time. <laughs> yeah, that's a little sardonic, but absolutely. Um, you know, it's terrorizing. Why can't we just call it what it is? It's terrorizing, right? Terrorist doesn't mean that someone believes a certain religious belief or holds to some perverted ideology. Terrorism just means that someone's terrorizing the hell out of you. They could be just batshit crazy. Don't matter if it's terrorizing you, right? Yeah, I think of you remember the movie Cape Fear? Uh, whether you remember the Robert De Niro version or the uh, earlier version, um, but Cape Fear, right? That guy was terrorizing that lawyer, right? Not for any, you know, warped religion or ideology, but just because he had a personal vendetta and was terrorizing the guy, right? Terrorism is terrorism. And so if we have to live our lives in fear that random bullets are going to be sprayed in any public place that we go to, that's kind of terrorism. That's that's terrorizing so no matter why these guys chose to do it, it doesn't matter. They're terrorists. <laughs> Just uh, when when in a taxi, here's the thing. There's this there's this understanding of terrorism and hate crimes, and they're in the same ballpark as far as understanding why they're a different kind of crime. And it took me a long time to get my head around this. 
I was one of those guys who was like, well, aren't all crimes of violence hate crimes? You know, that you hate someone, you're going to, you're not beating up people you like, right? <laughs> I was, I, I had that line of thinking. But I, I came to understand that with a hate crime, here's the difference between a hate crime and terrorism, right? But they're in the same sort of ballpark. Both are, are acts of terrorism, acts that terrorize. The hate crime is terrorism because it targets people for a specific reason related to their race, their religion, their perceived gender identity, whatever, right? And in so targeting the one member or the few members of that group, you terrorize all of them because now they feel they can be victims at any time merely for who they are. And so that's why a hate crime is a hate crime. And it gets punished more severely as it should. We punish more severely first degree murder than we do second degree murder because of the intent of the person killing. We punish murder more than we punish manslaughter again, because of the intent of the killer. So if there's this intent to terrorize a group of people by randomly selecting one from that group, that's a hate crime. Terrorism is that same idea applied to just randomness. Right. The, the hate crime is picking a group specifically to terrorize members of that group. The terrorism is picking just random members of society to terrorize that entire society. And that's what I think we're seeing in these shootings that, you know, Colorado Springs and this latest one in San Bernardino. I'm going to try to try hard to say the R in that. Right. Bernard, you know, it's just uh so much we could talk about, but we're gonna we're gonna put that on the shelf again because this is a marijuana show. I you know I do have to open with what I'm thinking about, but we got some marijuana topics to cover here, specifically the bans being proposed uh, in Oregon and in uh, Washington. They've already done it compared to how Alaska is moving forward with cannabis cafes, and the other states looking to legalize are moving forward with the idea of cannabis cafes. I think they're a very very important part of marijuana legalization. Don't touch that dial. We're right back to Radical Russ in just a few minutes. Hey, does anybody really have a dial anymore? You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. Yeah, Cannabis Cafes, that's coming up next. And uh, then we'll have our Daily Toker tunes for Irie Wednesday. We got some K-pop for you. Gordon Green's got some K-pop. Don't forget Gordon Green Music Planet tonight at 8 o'clock. Another great hour of world music. Then in our second half hour, Ethan Nadelman from the Reform Conference, his opening plenary speech. We got a segment of that for you. Plus your calls at 971-533-7111. son of a Polish immigrant who grew up in a Brooklyn tenement. He went to public schools, then college, where the work of his life began, fighting injustice and inequality, speaking truth to power. 
He moved to Vermont, won election and praise as one of America's best mayors. In Congress, he stood up for working families and for principle, opposing the Iraq war, supporting veterans. Now he's taking on Wall Street and a corrupt political system, funded by over a million contributions, tackling climate change to create clean energy jobs, fighting for living wages, equal pay, and tuition-free public colleges. People are sick and tired of establishment politics, and they want real change. Bernie Sanders, husband, father, grandfather, an honest leader, building a movement with you to give us a future to believe in. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. In the middle of Toker Talk Radio, it's not a new radical rant. That's just the uh, break music that came up here. The randomizer picked one of those. So there we go. We're uh, back, and the phone lines are open here at 971-533-7111. And we're following up on the story here, the radical rant of uh, the Indoor Clean Air Act rules that are going to shut down three... Bring Your Own Buds Cannabis Cafe is the world-famous cannabis cafe, the other spot, and the Northwest Cannabis Club. Now, there may be a legal fight here. Now, the clubs are going to claim that they're private clubs, that they're run by volunteers. There's no employees because a lot of this uh, Clean Air Act stuff has to do with employees, they're not selling alcohol. The, the Oregon Liquor Control Authority is already, or Liquor Control Commission has already uh, stated flat out that any place with a liquor license is a public place. Even if that place isn't using the liquor license at that time, it's a public place. So that takes out all, almost all your big venues, you know, theaters and such that, you know, around the Oregon area that allow for beer, even beer sales. You know, you cannot run an, uh, a cannabis event there. But this uh, Clean Air Act, originally based on the threat of secondhand smoke from tobacco, has now been expanded to include secondhand vapor from cannabis. And there's a part of me that has to say this. Told you so. And this goes back even, gosh, it's got to be even prior to my cannabis activism. You know, I come to this from being a, a, a club musician. I was a road musician and played music in a lot of smoky bars. And I'd come home with the effects of playing in a smoky bar, man. You smell like smoke, hair smells like smoke. You'd have this hack. And part of the hack is, you know, drinking whiskey. And part of the hack is, you know, the, the cigarette smoke. And a part of the hack is singing ACDC tunes. But... There is definite hack from the cigarette smoke. I, no doubt about it. And I was in a band once. I was in a, um, 
I was in a funk band that was headed by this just gorgeous and amazing female lead singer who was uh, like she was an opera student at uh, Boise State University, as a matter of fact. And Stephanie was her name. And uh, she played with us for a little while, but then she quit. She had to quit the band because she couldn't take the smoke in all the places where we played. Right. So I, I came I was in the club scene. As all these clean air acts began to get passed in the 90s. And I remember advocating against this. I said, man, we're going to regret that we passed this, that we didn't carve out some sort of exception or some sort of licensing, that we just gave the state blanket privilege to ban all indoor smoking. That's going to come back to bite us. And sure enough, it has. Because now those statutes that were made, and based on the premise of reducing the harm of secondhand smoke, that was the entire reasoning behind it, oh no, the bartenders and the wait staff and the musicians and the people in the bars, or the people in the restaurants even, my goodness, their health, oh, their lungs, oh, the secondhand smoke, we got to protect them. That was the rationale. And now that rationale has been expanded to... Secondhand vapor from cannabis, of which there's no scientific basis to suggest that that is harmful to any other people. And even if you could show it is, you couldn't show it's as harmful as secondhand tobacco smoke, for which we allow exceptions at cigar bars and smoke shops. Hell, the smoke shop exception is there so that the customers can sample tobacco products so they can know what to buy. How much more appropriate would that be at a marijuana dispensary? Well, Super Silver Haze, OG Kush, I don't know. Can I sample one of them? How nice would that be? Nope, can't have that. Because danger, danger, secondhand smoke, whatever. Now, I'm sympathetic to the arguments against secondhand tobacco smoke. I get it, right? I worked in, like I said, worked in the secondhand smoke, grew up in restaurants that my parents managed that allowed smoking, uh, had both parents that were cigarette smokers for quite a long time. No, so I understand these sides, uh, these sides of the arguments. Absolutely. And I understand also the anti-smoking side of it people that don't want to go to a restaurant that smells like tobacco smoke people would like to go out and listen to bands or or you know uh listen to ensembles at clubs but can't go out because of the smoke the smoke gets to them they're, they're sensitive to the smoke i get all that so if the problem is the smoke why not allow there to be ways people can qualify to mitigate the smoke. It can be done. Imagine that you have these, because they've got the requirements in there for the cigar bars and the, the smoke shops for the adequate mitigation of smoke with, for, with adequate ventilation. They've got ventilation rules. Why could that not have been for any bar or any restaurant to have ventilation rules? Well, because the smoke wafts over and gets to the other sections. Okay, okay, sure. How about having a section that's partitioned off, plexiglassed off like the smoking lounges at some airports that has its own ventilation and its own set of waiters that go into it? 
Why couldn't there have been maybe set up a limited number of smoking licenses in a city or county like liquor licenses, right? And just a few of them though. So like the majority of bars and restaurants would be smoke free just out of the fact they don't have a license, but there could be a few of these licenses and you could make them really expensive because there'd just be a few and they'd be very valuable, but a few licenses where there could be licensed smoking. And the fees from those licenses help to pay for a healthcare fund for the people that work at those places. And the people that work at those places, maybe we set the law that they get extra pay. They get hazard pay for working in a place with a smoking license. Why can't there be, I mean, I I worry about absolute bans on things when we could find compromises. And had we have found those compromises with tobacco, we'd be in a situation now with the emergence of cannabis to apply those same compromises to allow for public cannabis consumption. So the lesson I guess to take from this is to beware the demonization of people that use other drugs, whether it be tobacco or meth or Coke or heroin or whatever it might be, because your demonization could come back to haunt you in ways you haven't even thought of yet. Every now and then, it's a bell rather than a horn. (laughs) That means it's 420 here in the Pacific Time Zone. Time for us all to get to our union-mandated safety briefing. We don't have safety safety meetings out west anymore. They're just briefings. We still got shit to do. (laughs) Imagine life without taxes. Let New Era Certified Public Accountants, NewEraCPAs.com, handle your Cannabis 280E and tax strategy. Get your business prepared with New Era CPAs Cannabis Finance Bootcamp. NewEraCPAs.com, with years of experience in the industry, we are one of the nation's leading accounting firms for growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies from Washington to California. NewEraCPAs.com. Get.Buzz. .Buzz is the internet platform that fuels community interest, excitement, and new experiences. .Buzz is the premier online destination for internet users seeking the latest news on a variety of topics. .Buzz appeals to groups active in blogging, communications, journalism, advertising, and marketing. .Buzz offers registrants a stronger alternative to the shrinking namespace of existing top-level domain names, such as .com, .net, and .org. Get your name now at Get.Buzz. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Everyone knows music and marijuana go together, so let's wind up our 20 after break with the Russ Belleville Show's Daily Toker Tunes, the best in pod safe 420 music from around the web. 
Today is Irie Wednesday, featuring reggae, ska, and other world music genres. Now, sit back and enjoy your daily toker tunes. All right, Gordon can't make the call today, but we got to remind you about his great show, Gordon Green's Music Planet, which is coming up later tonight, 8 p.m. Pacific Time, 11 p.m. on the East Coast. And it's a great way to get yourself a good dose of world music, learn some new stuff, and Gordon's usually got a theme for every show. So check that out tonight, and you will learn something. For today's show, we're going to bring up a tune that got bumped last week. We did a Gogol Bordello last week because they had been playing here in Portland. But uh, this week, we go to South Korea for some more K-pop, and it's uh, a tune entitled... Uh, Je- or this is an artist called Jesse, and the song is called Senuni, and I hope I've got that somewhere close to being pronounced correctly. Famous bruh. Challenge you, John. That's why right, I'm a spaceship. So I'm super fly. Mode mode bar to the chair. Oh my, who gonna? Who gonna? Who gonna? Who gonna go? Big hashtag Jesse sexy. Jabby, I'm a Teugo Dalinen taxi. Give me some jackass on your jean competition. These are names that do the torture. Who the? Who the? They call me Sen on me. Who the? Who the? She just Sen on me. Who the? Who the? Time to catch you guys. Make a moody butter.
Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio, inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. Dr. Dabber, hurry! Its temperature is shooting past a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up! I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct! Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's order. Less heat, more flavor. All right, everyone, welcome back. Toker Talk Radio, getting close to the second half hour here. Glad to have you here. I'm Radical Russ Belville, your host and um, documenter of some of these uh, amazing and hilarious and tragic stories that make up what we call the war on certain American citizens using non-pharmaceutical, non-alcoholic, tobacco-free drugs. And increasingly, one of the things that is undeniable about the war on drugs is the racist nature of not just it, but also our policing system. And I'm, I'm getting to a point now where I'm, I'm feeling a, a shift in my activism from not just the war on drugs, but also looking at our entire criminal justice, penal system altogether. And in so many ways, but this latest story to come up on Jezebel.com highlights uh, another aspect of this. The, the title is Report Alabama Police Planted Drugs and Weapons on Black Men for Over a Decade. There's a report that comes out of the Alabama Justice Project Officers, up to a dozen of them that were part of a narcotics unit in Dothan, Dothan Police Department, supervised by the current police chief as well as Alabama's assistant director of Homeland Security. <laughs> also, the men are reportedly members of a neo-Confederate organization that has been designated as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. There was uh, an internal internal affairs investigation that was covered up by the district attorney, Doug Valeska. Uh, according to the Henry County Report, quote, Beginning in early 1996, the Dothan Police Department received complaints from black victims that drugs and weapons were being planted. Specifically, young black men who had clean records were targeted. 
Police Chief John White <laughs> allegedly instructed senior officers to ignore the complaints, and they willingly complied. All of these cases involved planted dr- involving planted drugs and weapons were subsequently prosecuted by District Attorney Doug Valeska, despite the written allegations by police officers that the evidence was planted. Never was any such information shared in the discovery process with the defendant's attorneys. We have been advised that each of these are considered felonies committed by the district attorney. And I think it's important for us to note, these are the guys that got caught. These are just the guys that got caught. This has happened and is happening all across America. Now, Sometimes when I get into these tirades about the racist nature of the war on drugs, I get pushback from some people. Lately, I wrote a column on high times about drug war reparations, and a couple of the commenters left me these comments that that amounted to the idea of, that's bullshit, man. White people get arrested for drugs, too. I got busted. I'm white. I did serious time. I know white people did serious time. Yes, yes, of course. There's no denying that. There's no denying that when it comes to wrecking a person's life, whether they're white, brown, black, doesn't matter, the drug war can ruin your life. Nobody's denying that. You can hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. One being that I know white people or am a white person who was destroyed by the war on drugs. And... The war on drugs destroys the lives of black people far more often and more seriously more often. That does not diminish the fact that you as a white person suffered or know someone who suffered. That does not take that away at all. It just says that what happened to you happens far more often to people of color. It is more likely to happen to people of color. As a white person who got embroiled in the drug war, you were extremely unlucky, statistically speaking, compared to people of color. It doesn't mean you didn't suffer as much. doesn't mean your suffering is any less. But we do need to recognize that we are talking about a system designed for racist purposes to accomplish racist goals. The entire war on drugs was scripted out of racist fear-mongering about the Chinese and their opium, the Mexicans and their marijuana, the blacks and their cocaine. When white folks were doing those things, they, they were fine. When the white folks were doing the opium, it was laudanum, and it was okay. When the white folks were doing the cocaine, it was, you know, Sigmund Freud, and it was Sherlock Holmes and all these other historical figures, and it was, you know, a medical thing. And there wasn't much of the white folks using the cannabis in the early days. But these laws were all instituted to crack down on those people. Specifically, like the first opium acts in California were to crack down on Chinamen, their their term, using opium or, or setting up opium dens that would lure the white women into addiction. But if you were a white person with an opium den, it was cool. It was all fine. And they couldn't have been more racist in their implementation or their design. And there's so much of this when you start to look at it this way. 
when you start to recognize America as being a place that became the most powerful economy in the world on the basis of free labor, on, on the basis of exploiting slave labor for 200 years, and then after that, very low-paid sharecroppers, indentured servants, the Chinese immigrants that came across to build the railroad, the Mexican immigrants, and so forth, that were paid sub-sub-living wages and exploited in lots of different ways. When you start to recognize that, you start to see how the drug war plays a part in that. Because as the arc of the universe begins bending toward moral justice, as Dr. King once pointed out, as that starts to happen, it starts to eat into profits. When you went from like slavery to Jim Crow, slavery to Reconstruction, slavery to sharecropping, whatever in between you want to focus on, it, it, it definitely cost more for the guy who wanted to have the cotton plantation or whatever it was, right? Slavery was free labor, and now you got to pay something for it, even if it was a pittance, even if it was, you know, pathetic. You still It still cost, right? And so at every stage of our evolution as a society, as we've recognized more rights of workers and women and children and minorities, it's become more expensive to actually have to pay people. Oh, minimum wages. Oh, my God. Now we have to pay them enough money to not starve. Oh, wow. And that starts to eat into profits, right? So when it becomes illegal to discriminate against certain people, when it becomes more difficult to keep them economically enslaved to working at a job they hate in, a, in conditions that are deplorable, when those things start to evaporate, the powers that be, the in industries in power, the, the ones that control the government, Find a way to make those things legal. How can we make that discrimination legal? How can we keep doing what we want to do, but find a way to legally do it? Well, the drug war was the first start in that. We can't really, you know, harass these people for being black or brown or Chinese anymore because it's illegal. But we can start harassing them for what they're imbibing, what their culture is, what they tend to use as a relaxant or as a euphoriant or intoxicant, whatever it might be, we can crack down on that and indirectly then be able to deal with them. And the drug war continues and persists in that. Keep, part of keeping marijuana illegal is to get people in the system. Is so that the smell of weed, because all the other drugs like cocaine, meth, heroin, those are little tiny drugs you can slip into your pocket that no one's going to smell or know you've got on you. Pills, no problem. But pot stinks. Keeping marijuana illegal is really important for those cops who want to have an excuse to shake down those people on the streets and then be able to get their fingerprints and their names and their records into the system and to arrest a certain number of them, to put them into a system that then pretty much guarantees they end up in this circular decline into a world of criminal behavior that then ends up filling prison beds and providing 19 cents an hour labor at the, at the prison work uh, facility for corporations. 
They find a way to keep that cheap slave labor, to keep that certain segment of the society down, to keep the labor cost down. And that the drug war is an important cog in that. And that's why a lot of these established industries fight against ending prohibition, fight against ending the drug war, because somewhere deep down they got to know that ending the drug wars is unchaining yet another shackle that have kept the average people down, that have that have kept this this cheap labor in check and they know it's going to cost them money. That's what, that's what they don't like about it. All right. We're going to take a break by playing for you. One of the best public speakers in, in drug law reform. He's the executive director of the drug policy Alliance. You've seen him on TV, uh, in numerous, you know, CNN, Fox news, all those sort of news channels, Speaking for ICE, our side, and doing it better than almost anyone out there. I'd put him up against anyone in public speaking on the drug war. It's Ethan Nadelman. This is a clip from his opening plenary at the International Drug Policy Reform Conference. My colleague, my beloved, Dr. Ethan Nadelman. Trumbo. It was about a guy, a screenwriter, 
who was blacklisted during the 1950s. It was about the era of McCarthyism. One of the things I realized is that when I say the era of McCarthyism, many of you don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about those of you from outside the United States, but to sum it up in just a couple of sentences, McCarthyism was that horrific period in America, predominantly during the 1950s, when we come out of World War II with all the elation and celebration, and all of a sudden we found ourselves in this Cold War and fears of communism, of Russia, uh, what Russia might do to America, and of communist spies were everywhere. And during that time, people like a senator named Joe McCarthy and lots of others like him, they played on people's fears. They played on people's fears, they created blacklists, and, and they, they terrorized people, they destroyed lives and careers and families, did horrific things, some people went to prison, people were silenced and censored, dragged up before congressional committees, described as un-American by a committee on un-American activities. And one of the most horrible things about it all was that the vast majority of Americans went along. They went along. And one of the things that saddens me today is that even as the Americans in the 1960s and after that began to repudiate that history of McCarthyism, that there was some lacking of accountability. There was some failure to call it account. And some failure to ensure that future generations knew about McCarthyism and about other periods of McCarthyist-like activity in our past so that we could learn and remember and know something of what might lie ahead, or of the injustices of which we fight, that they were grounded in something else. Well, that's when I was sitting there watching that movie and, and just thinking about the war on drugs and where we lie now. Because, you know, what happened in the late 1980s and the 1990s, and for that matter, under Nixon in the 70s, but truly in the 80s and the 90s and into, and into the first decade of this century, was something like McCarthyism on steroids. Yeah. Right? And McCarthyism that have played on real fears of the American people, fears about drugs coming into our country, fears about junkies and drug addicts and drug dealers and all sorts of things. It played on that. But what it also shared in common was the fact that almost everybody went along. Almost everybody went along. Not just white people, but black people and brown people, leaders and followers, people around the world. It became almost the great global consensus where America and Cuba and Libya and Russia could all agree on something, which was that we needed a global war on drugs no matter the costs or the consequences. And what pains me about today is that we barely know our history and that there has been no accountability that the Joe McCarthy's of the drug war still stand strong and still get honor in our societies and have not been called out. <laughs> and so I've been thinking about the challenge, this has been a lot on my mind of late, the challenge of a, of, a, of a political movement as we are entering what might best be described as our second generation. Where some of you here were here in the old days of the Drug Policy Foundation, where we met almost every year, some three or four hundred of us, maybe a group that could fit in this part of the room right here, right? And where we were in the midst of a horrific war on drugs and a small number of people standing up and saying something was wrong, right? And I, when I think about, and then I think about those of you who are younger than my daughter. Those of you who are still in college, or younger, or just a few years older, those of you who 
were born after the war on drugs was declared in the late, late 1980s. Those of you who don't know who William Bennett was, <laughs> you laugh. But many of you have never heard that name until it just came out of my mouth. And, and, and the thing is, is that what I kept thinking about was the challenges of each generation. Then on the one hand, here's this generation of people my age who are older and younger who go back and go back and know this history. And we have the benefit of knowing this history. We have the benefit of the wisdom acquired in, in years and decades of struggling for justice. We know that of which we came from. We know how horrific this would be. And when we see the little victories of today, we know how to embrace and, and, and appreciate what has actually been accomplished. But I also know that there's downsides that come with all having been in this for so many decades. It's the sense in which we were so accustomed to the horrific history that sometimes we begin to lose sight of what the vision could be for a radically different world. It's sometimes we begin to lack faith in the capacity for change. It's sometimes that some of us become afraid of victory. It's that existential struggle when you fight all your life to end an injustice, and then injustice begins to end, and you begin to ask yourself, if that injustice I fought all my life against is ending, what is the rest of my life about? And what actually life? What is this that I created? And we see that happening in the marijuana reform of today. We sure do. Yeah. What a struggle it is. And I live that struggle inside myself every single day. Every single day. My God, we're winning. We're winning. Oh my God, four states down, but you are to the public. We're right behind the gay rights movement and achieving victory. Oh my God, and then, oh my God. <laughs> Those guys in Ohio, if you'd won it, it would have lit up American politics, and if you'd won it, oh my God. <laughs> A constitutionally mandated oligopoly for an agricultural product that every American should be free to grow. I don't know. <laughs>
between old and young is just one of them, and how we maintain an increasingly multi-generational campaign and a movement to end the war on drugs to the point where actually, you know, we have some debate. Should we even be attacking the war on drugs anymore? Because we're at a point where the vast majority of Americans and most other people believe the war on drugs has failed. Then when we're beginning, you know, for 20 years, Drug Policy Alliance has said, end the war on drugs. Now we're saying, do we need a new phrase? Do we need to talk about ending drug prohibition? Do we need to talk about ending punitive prohibition? Do we need to keep our language evolving? So one of the other things I think about is the dialectical relationship between drug policy reform as a movement in and of itself seeking to infuse others and all the other movements for freedom and social justice that are out there and that weave together and intermingle with ours. It is about, on the one hand, retaining, embracing, building out our uniqueness as drug policy reformers while keeping our minds and our hearts and everything open to the opportunities to be part and to meld with other movements. That itself is its own challenge. You know, what is this movement for Adams? It grew out of that horrific period in the late 80s and early 90s when this massive war on drugs was declared. It grew out of a period when millions of Americans were being terrorized and demonized. It came out of a period when the first lady of the United States said that the casual marijuana user was the most dangerous first person in America. It grew out of a period when all of a sudden Jim Crow was being replaced by a massive, massive attack on people of color in this country. It came at a time when people, a new generation growing up in the 80s, that was actually embracing some of this stuff, where a sense that the young would set us free in the future was actually when the 80s replaced the 70s and the, the 60s, the period of rebellion, the 70s of living and let live, was replaced by the 80s, the, little, the, the generation of conformity, and all of a sudden our hopes that youth could leave something were dashed. <laughs> We emerged that the realization that was happening with the war on drugs was fundamentally wrong. We emerged out of the notion that treating and punishing a human being whose only offense was to possess, use, grow, sell, buy some forbidden substance, that that person was morally and criminally equivalent to a human being who took somebody's life, who raped, who performed horrible acts. That's what was said in those days. We grew out of the notion and the principle that nobody but nobody deserves to be punished or discriminated against or amongst based solely upon what we put into our bodies so long as we do no harm to others. We grew out of that notion, that fundamental human rights, civil libertarian, human rights, civil rights, human rights notion about sovereignty of our own mind and body and what happens when you begin to act as if human beings who have done no harm to others deserve to lose their freedom for days, weeks, months, years, or decades. We grew out of that a sense of our fundamental uniqueness. It was our consciousness that the stigma attached to human beings who use those drugs instead of those drugs, that that stigma was not justified. It grew up the notion of people being deprived of their access to the medications they needed because taking that medication by definition made you an addict. It grew out of the understanding that what American foreign policy was doing to the rest of the world in projecting our abysmal, paranoid drug war onto the rest of the world was fundamentally wrong and something for which we as Americans needed to apologize to the rest of the world. And it grew also 
partnership between left, right, and center. A movement in which base and passion came so much from the left part of the American political spectrum and similar ones outside, but where conservatives like William Buckley and Milton Friedman and George Shultz and others were every bit as passionate about ending this war on drugs for their own conservative and libertarian reasons. We were to some extent, and are remaining to some extent, unique. Those of us who came from the left knew there was something fundamentally wrong about the excesses of the dynamism of American capitalism, the ways that people were left behind. But we also had a unique viewpoint that brought us together with people on the right because we had and we still have an upfront seat to precisely how venal government can be in some areas of life. It didn't take American capitalism to produce the war on drugs. It took politicians playing on fear and the interests of prison guard unions and private corporations, but fundamentally driven by fear and political self-interest. We saw how bad government can be. And we made our alliances. Because those of us on the right also understood that there was something fundamentally wrong. Something fundamentally wrong with depriving people of their basic freedoms, of wasting government resources, of building mass incarceration, that that too was wrong. And what unites left, right, and center in this drug policy reform movement? Drug policy reform is many things, but it is foremost a movement for liberty and freedom. Freedom from oppression, freedom from fear, freedom from incarceration, freedom from racism, freedom. That is what we need to keep in mind that that core element of freedom is actually pivotal to who we are. It is what unites us with all the other human rights movements that have gone before us and the ones of which we are increasingly becoming a part. You cannot beat Ethan Nadelman for public speaking. He gets a crowd riled up, and it was a crowd of close to 1,400 people listening to the opening plenary. The Reform Conference topped out at over 1,600 people from 71 countries. The next Reform Conference is coming to Atlanta, October 11th through 14th, 2017. Make plans. Get there. If you've never been to an international reform conference, you've never been to anything like it. It's just amazing. Stay tuned. Stoner Jesus is coming up next on CannabisRadio.com. His special guest, Charlo Fuck It, I Quit Green, will be on with Stoner Jesus, getting all the blessings thereof. <laughs> for everyone here at Rolla J Studios in beautiful legal potland, Oregon, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, jokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth.